0: Welcome to Raising Good Humans, I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today we are talking about play. We are having a serious talk about play. And I have Professor Peter Gray, who is a research professor at Boston College and the author of Free to Learn. He's conducted and published research in neuroendocrinology, developmental psychology, anthropology, and education. And his current research and writing really focuses on children's natural ways of learning and the lifelong value of play. So we're defining play, what it is and what it isn't. We're talking about rough housing. We're talking about the benefits of play with and without adults, structure, and what we think of as unstructured, and how to incorporate more play into our daily lives. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoy this episode, please don't hesitate to subscribe if you haven't already, rate and write a little review. And as always, please DM me on my Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast for questions on the bonus episode and videos that I can do on social media. So I wanted to start our conversation by asking you to define play.
1: Yeah, that's actually something I've given a lot of thought to and uh, written about because so many people, especially within psychology, say they don't study play because they can't define it. It's not definable. It's not, you know. So I thought, Mm -hmm. well, it's really pretty important to define it. So here's the way I define it. First of all, like so many terms that have to do with human behavior and mood and so forth it's not defined in um, terms of one simple statement play is a uh, an activity that has a number of characteristics to it and play and, and an activity can be more or less playful to the degree that it has these characteristics so let me list what the characteristics are The first one, and probably most important, is that it is self-chosen and self-directed. It's something that you have chosen to do and that you and your playmates, if you're playing with other people, are directing yourselves. You don't have some authority figure outside of the play group or the play person telling you what to do. So that's uh, the first characteristic. The second characteristic, kind of related to the first but a little bit different, is that it is intrinsically motivated. So that means that you are doing it because you are interested in doing it, not because uh, either interested or joyful. I don't want to always say that you're doing it because it's fun, because play isn't always in the immediate sense, fun. But it's something that you've chosen to do, that you want to do, and that you're doing it for its own sake. You're not doing it for some other reward. You're not doing it for an A on a report card or praise from a parent or to improve your resume or to lose weight. (laughs) You're just doing it. Because you want to do it. Now, it's possible that it would have some of those other consequences.
0: Benefits. Mm-hmm. But,
1: but to the degree that you are doing it for that, as opposed to, to doing it just because you want to do it, it's not play. So one way to know that you're really playing is if you're doing something, even though <laughs> other people are telling you not to do it and you're getting more punishment than reward for it. So that's uh, the second characteristic. The third characteristic is kind of surprising to a lot of people, and that is that it's always structured. Play is structured activity. It's activity that's structured by the players themselves. So people talk about unstructured play, and I, I never talk about unstructured play except to correct the people who are using that term, because... Uh, Play is always structured, it's structured by the players themselves. Play is not random activity. You're always doing something. You've got something in mind, some some, uh, set of parameters that you're behaving within when you're playing. The way the great uh, Russian psychologist Lev Vygotsky put it long ago is that all play has rules. And what he meant was not necessarily formal rules like games with formal rules, which are play, but that, they ha- that it has mental guidelines, that mm-hmm. play is in that sense, always a mental activity. It's always an exercise in staying within the play boundaries of what you've set. And then kind of related to always has structure or rules is that play, essentially always, I I think that there are some exceptions that we would want to call play and that I call play, but play normally involves imagination. Play is always in some sense creative, but essentially always involves imagination, at least if we're talking about human play. We can't say that for sure about animals. We don't know that animals are capable of imagination. But when we are playing, and especially when children are playing, we're in some sense stepping out of the real world. We recognize ourselves as entering a play world, an imaginary world where things can be different from what they are in the real world. They may be the same, but that's because we've chosen to make them the same. So, you know, many versions of play have time in and time out. So time in is when you are in the play world and time out is when you're stepping back into the real world to tie your shoes or go to the bathroom or whatever it is that leads you to leave the play world for that period of time and then a final characteristic which really follows from the others and therefore I sometimes leave it out is that play involves an alert but not highly stressed frame of mind it's the frame of mind that many psychologists refer to as flow in some sense you are not so self-conscious as you normally are you are involved in this activity you are necessary the reason i say it follows from the other things is that you are necessarily alert because you can't be passive in play play involves active attention to what you're doing that's part of following the rules that's part of the imaginative quality of it you can be passive in reading a book in some sense or watching television but you can't be passive in playing you're always active while you're playing so so the mind is alert and active and engaged but at the same time you're not overly stressed for a number of reasons. Number one is this is all in an imaginary world. (laughs) You're free to fail. You know, it doesn't matter. You're not getting any trophy. There's nobody cheering for you or not cheering for you or booing. uh, You're not being judged by somebody. That's part of the fact that it's intrinsically motivated and self-chosen and so on and so forth. So you're outside of the world of where Pete, where you're, concerned about other people's judgment about what you're doing which is a source of stress you might in some sense be deliberately stressing yourself and that's why i say not overly stressed so you might be as part of your play climbing a tree high (laughs) to the point where you feel some fear and that's a little bit of stress but what you're doing when you're doing that is you're playing with your fear you are Seeing how much fear can I feel and yet deal with it, right so you are you are deliberately putting yourself in that state. It's not somebody else. If somebody else put you in that state, it would not be play, and it could be terrifying, but right. you've put yourself in that state, and one of the characteristics of play which follows from freely chosen is that you're always free to quit. If you're not free to quit, it's not play so. You climb that tree to the point that uh, you're feeling more fear than you want to fear, well, you come down. So, Or you're playing with a playmate and suddenly it's no longer fun, that playmate is becoming threatening, you quit. So that characteristic of the mind being very alert but not threatened in uh, any dramatic sense um, That's a state of mind that many psychologists refer to as flow. And that's a state of mind that research shows is the ideal state of mind for learning new things, for thinking creatively, for solving insight problems, and and so on. So those are the primary characteristics of play.
0: So when you think about play and parents getting motivated to give space for play. What are some of the pitfalls that might happen? And I think I'm, I'm leading you, which I don't mean to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as I say that, it sounds like I'm leading you to say something. And I don't want this to be a criticism of parents because you know, we're all doing our best, but I do just want to highlight what, play is not when right it comes to you know in case somebody's listening and thinking i've got a i've got now more stuff on my list and i have to make sure to curate beautiful play experiences i want to avoid that so how could parents avoid falling into that right trap
1: well it's a it's a good question and it's a it's the kind of question that parents are concerned about today that would have been of zero concern to parents when I was a kid. Right, right. And, and the reason is when I was a kid, what the role of parents in play was get out of the house, right? Just go out, yeah. get away from me, get out. get out. And all the parents were saying that. And so all the kids were outdoors and there were always kids to play with. And you were free to go off, even off of your own property if you were more than four or five years old and you could find people mm-hmm. to play with. Well, unfortunately for kids, we don't live in that world now. And that means that parents probably have to play some role beyond get out of the house. <laughs> it would that, It would be nice if parents were a little less afraid of their kids getting out of the house without a parent there. The primary stimulus for play is other kids. And the primary inhibitor of play for kids is adults. There's actually quite a lot of research on this, where, for example, uh, researchers observing children in parks. The more other kids there are with and around the kid, their their target kid, the more play there is. If there is an adult present, and if that adult is clearly watching and in any sense potentially supervising what's going on, that inhibits the play. Less play, less active play, less imaginative play, less vigorous play. Adult, so the primary thing adults have to understand is they are inhibitors of play. They have to get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> they have to get out of the way. Okay. And how do you do that in our culture and yet not be regarded as a negligent adult? And that's a challenge that needs to be met.
0: Which is, Uh, uh, that was going to be my next question because it's a fine balance between, you know, maybe it's not even that fine of a balance, but parents can might might worry that they're coming across as negligent if they're just like, go, go forth and play when no one else is saying that around them. And then the second part of that question is how can you do that in the context of a pandemic world where there are more parameters around play.
1: Well, that's right. And it was probably just as hard before the pandemic. <laughs> and, totally. I
0: don't know why I'm making yeah. the pandemic as an excuse. And, and, You're absolutely the, right.
1: The the reason is because we we have a world now where you can literally be arrested, <laughs> you know, and for allowing your child out to play. Even a child as old as 10 years old, you know, that um when I was a kid, when I was five years old, I could go anywhere in town on my bicycle by myself, and I could go out of town if I went with my six-year-old friends. So that's uh, we don't live in that world now. No. Uh, and it's not that the world is more dangerous now. It really is not more dangerous. We just think it's more dangerous.
0: Because know we know, and, about, we know about the danger.
1: We know about the dangers, but we don't know enough about the dangers. We don't know how rare they are. <laughs> We don't know. I mean, lightning can strike. We know, but we don't run our lives that way. And unfortunately, what has happened is we've sort of developed, this has become no longer anything having to do with common sense and true understanding. It's become a, a moral imperative that if you're not watching your kid all the time or somebody, some responsible adult isn't watching your kid all the time. You're being a negligent parent. That's kind of the moral imperative, even when it doesn't make sense, even when we know very well and everybody knows very well that those kids are perfectly capable of walking to school by themselves, Mm -hmm. going off and playing in the park, even in neighborhoods and areas where there's never been a crime against children. I go back to some of the little towns that I lived in as a kid. They're still little sleepy little towns just as they ever were. But the difference is, even there, people aren't afraid to let their kids out because they think they'll be regarded as negligent parents by other parents, by possibly authorities. Uh, everybody has, a, has heard of these stories of kids being threatened to be taken away by, by Child Protective Services because you've allowed your kid to go and play in the park. <laughs> you know, things that in the past um, would have been absolutely normal parenting. So that's understandable. So you have to figure, there are things that you can do. First of all, if parents have the opportunity to move or to society, if you're looking for a house, do not look for the fanciest, most expensive, high-class housing that you can afford. (laughs) Go for a more working-class neighborhood where you'll find more kids outdoors. Go for a place where uh, there's more kids available. Judge the neighborhood by do you see kids outdoors playing or don't you, (laughs) you know, that would be one thing. Mm -hmm. If you're if you go to a neighborhood where you see kids playing outdoors, that's probably going to be a good neighborhood for your kids to grow up in. That's more important in my judgment than some rating of how fancy the school is and how many advanced placement classes they offer and all of that kind of stuff. Because kids really, par- a huge important part of growing up is learning how to get along with other kids in the context of play. Um, our mm-hmm. children are are suffering because of being deprived of that. So that's one thing. But there are other things you can do. So
0: Yeah, assuming people are going to stay where they are.
1: <laughs> assuming people but are going to stay where they are. What are,
0: are some so, things that they can do to... So-
1: So I'll give you a a couple of examples. So one person who's uh, become a bit of a friend, uh, Mike Lanza is his name. Perhaps you've heard of him. He wrote a book called Playberhood. He, we have to admit, is um, relatively wealthy, lives in uh, Menlo Park, California, a high expensive neighborhood. But everybody has small yards there. He had moved there. He had, when he moved there, he had one young son. He's now got three And he could see that there were kids living in that neighborhood because they would be standing out waiting for the school bus, of course, with a parent there protecting them in this neighborhood where crimes are never occurring, protecting them in front of the house until they get on the bus. But he never saw the kids in other contexts. They were not outdoors playing. And he said to himself, well, I want uh, my kids to play the way I did when I was growing up, to just go out and play. So he thought about what he could do. And his solution, which wouldn't be everybody's solution, because not everybody could afford it, was basically to build a little park in his front yard. (laughs) He made play equipment. He made a nice little half-court basketball court in the driveway. (laughs) He put out a water play thing. He put out, you can do this in California. He put out a toy box outdoors uh, with all kinds of fun things to play with made a sandbox, and basically he put up a police trespass sign. <laughs> and so although nobody else was ever out in the neighborhood, they also put, the, the Lanzas put their own picnic table out, the, out in the front yard, not in the backyard. But so
0: basically making this a welcoming space for- Making it a welcoming
1: space. So people didn't know their other neighbors, but they soon got to know the Lanzas because they were always outdoors. So even if you're just looking out the window or you're walking your dog or something, you run into the Lanzas. And they'd get into conversation and he'd say, so, you know, do you have kids? You know, they're always welcome to come over here and play. Even when we're not here, they can play here. (laughs) And so the kids in the neighborhood began. Now they had a place to play and it was relatively safe right on the block. And so the kids would come over and play the The Lanza's kids got to know their kids. And so at first they were playing in the Lanza's own yard. But as the kids got to know one another and as they grew older, they wanted to expand. So just, um, I guess it was probably about three or four years ago, I was invited to visit because visit the Lanza's because the, um, I think it was the New York Times was writing an article on the lenses, and they wanted me to be there also to sort of interview me about what they were doing and so i went out there and this um journalist and i followed uh the oldest son who was at that time i think 10 or 11 years old around followed him to school he bicycled to school with some of his friends and you know so we're in an age where kids are not bicycling to school but he was and his friends are in the neighborhood after school he bicycled back got on his skateboard and We, with his permission, followed him on bicycles. You know, skateboarded down through busy streets, across into a park and over to a skateboard park. And as far as we could tell, he and his friend were the only kids of that age who were skateboarding at the skateboard park without an adult directly observing them. Of course, we were there, but we were there only incidentally because we were invited and watching from a distance, not there to guard him. So although Mike Lance is, says, admittedly, this is not this is a whole free range kind of play that I had as a kid, but it's certainly a lot better than my children would have had if I hadn't done that. Well, in his book, Playborhood, he describes in different chapters what some other communities have done that are quite different from his community. So kind of at the other extreme of wealth, (laughs) in a way, uh, he describes an example of a housing project uh, where people are uh, below the poverty line, generally speaking, where the neighborhood, for legitimate reasons, parents are reluctant to allow their children out. I mean, there's guns, there's a terribly busy street. there's, There's reason to be concerned about your children and yet there were some parents in that project who said you know we want our kids to be able to go outdoors and play safely so what they did is they got the city to close off the street after school for a certain number of hours uh, so that the kids could play there without traffic and they recruited a group of grandmothers living in the project to sit out there uh, these are women who are not going to intervene. They're just there to provide a kind of authoritative safety. To be, you know, to, to put it one way, to drive the drug pushers away. So that was their solution. So if it takes initiative, what wherever you live. I think you can figure out some way to do it, but it may take initiative. You may have to get together with other neighbors. You live in a typical suburban neighborhood, for example, nobody's out to play. You might have to do this. You might have to get to know your neighbors, talk to them about how you regret that there's no kids outdoors playing and maybe discover that some of the other parents feel the same way, or maybe you can get them to feel the same way. And uh, then you work out some arrangements uh, that's uh, maybe not that different from what happened at this housing project. You say... So let's have certain hours where we kind of all send our kids out the way our mothers sent us out, or maybe how the way our grandparents sent our mothers out, you know, the, uh, to just send, let's send them out. And we can have somebody at least looking through the window, as, as used to happen in the 1950s, to make sure it's safe enough. We can give them some boundaries, don't go off the block, but you can play in everybody's yard, at least everybody's yard who's agreeable, and you, you can take out whatever you want to play. Let's do that. So that's another way to do it. Um, So there are ways to do it. We're also through the Let Grow organization that uh, I'm involved with, with Lenore Skenazy. We're working out ways to make real play happen at schools, um, where after school or before school, schools that have adopted this call it play club. But this is an opportunity, at least an hour long, uh, where you've got kids, it, if it's in an elementary school, which it usually is from, from K through fifth grade, all mixed together, you might have as many as 100 kids, the outdoor playground, the gymnasium, sometimes other rooms in the school, the hallways in the school are all open for free play. There's a lot of stuff to play with. So that's uh, another way that uh, that some schools are helping to solve the problem by making schools And parents, um, it's usually teachers, one or two teachers who are observing this and monitoring it, but they are in a sense taught. In fact, I, at some schools, I'm the one who gives them the talk (laughs) about Mm -hmm. how to be present without intervening, to realize that play is the place for the kids to solve their own problems. It's not the place for adults to solve problems for them. And uh, their job in watching this is to be kind of like uh, lifeguards on an ocean beach. They're not there to tell people what to do. They're not there to solve little quarrels. They're not there to worry about scraped knees. They're just there to save a life, you know. So, you know, that might be putting it a little bit extreme. No, but, but I think po- that's
0: very helpful because also yeah. parents you know, even if it's not teachers, if it's parents or I'm a city kid, so it's a little bit, you know, you can't necessarily rely on neighbors in the same way when you live in a city, which is funny because you're so much closer together. But what I'm hearing from you is when you're even creating play date experiences, you're there to, to give parents the guide of, Think of yourself as a lifeguard, so it's not this, it's not the little things that occur, and it's that the kids can right. problem solve on their own. And you really just intervene when, when yeah, there's something extreme happening.
1: Well, one of the things that I tell to the teachers, and I would say the same to parents, is you know, unless you really believe that there's going to be a death here, at least count to 10 before you intervene because you might find that the children resolve it themselves, or you might find before you count to 10, that, hey, this is not the big emergency I thought it was. Among the important things that children learn in play is how to deal with aggression, how to resolve their own problems. So they'll get into little squabbles, they'll get into little fights, but unless they're really hurting themselves, This is not a bad thing this is how they learn how to deal with it they learn that if they actually get mad and hit somebody that ends the play (laughs) so they learn through experience that um, that ends the play because the the person who's hit is going to say that's it i'm leaving (laughs) right right you know right right. not not because a parent ends it ideal you're you're learning because you want to play with this person but as i said the most important freedom in play is freedom to quit so If you and I are kids playing together, I have to learn to respect your needs or you're going to leave me. You're going to quit. (laughs) And so if a parent intervenes and solves the problem, so we continue playing, I haven't learned that lesson. That's why it's important to let the kids solve their own problem. The, The whole point of play is for the whole evolutionary, not the whole evolution, but one of the major evolutionary purposes of play is for children to learn to take responsibility for themselves. When parents take that responsibility or teachers or other adults take the responsibility, then the goal of the value of play is being undermined. And now
0: a word from my sponsors. We've shifted how we work and learn. And sometimes it feels like the world is changing faster than we can keep up with. Talkspace online therapy can help you manage stress, process significant life changes, and more. You guys know how important mental health is to me and how important it is to you so that you can feel a little less overwhelmed and a little more in control. Talkspace is ready to help you. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform. There are thousands of licensed therapists available for you to match with across dozens of specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more. This fall has been incredibly stressful. So many changes, so much jumping back into things after so much time away. You need to put your oxygen mask on first. So if you need a little support, to help you through the end of this year. If you want to start building toward a better upcoming year, if you want to feel more support, Talkspace is here to help. It'll match you with a licensed therapist when you go to Talkspace.com and you get $100 off your first month with the promo code HUMANS. That's $100 off when you use the code HUMANS at Talkspace.com and it is an investment in your mental health. So speaking of playfulness, this is an ad for a really fun bag. So MZ Wallace is a chic, innovative line of bags and accessories that are designed to do more, whether that means more traveling, more fitness, more efficient commuting, or just more fun. So these bags are designed to do even more the Medium Metro Tote Deluxe, which is the bag that I have adds new innovative features to the best-selling Metro tote silhouette with a luggage sleeve, two exterior slip pockets, two zippered collared pockets, and a removable adjustable crossbody strap. It's basically ready for anything from the office to the gym, to the airport, to the park or play dates and wherever else your day takes you. Here are some features that are just super convenient Zip top closure, so if you spill, everything doesn't spill out. Reinforced padded nylon handles so your shoulder doesn't hurt. Additional straps, detachable, adjustable, crossbody straps in case it's just getting too heavy or you need to be carrying other things or people. Five exterior pockets, natural leather protective feet, signature red leather edging, and a luggage sleeve. And then it also fits a laptop. It has a bunch of interior pockets so that you don't lose everything and a detachable pouch, a phone pocket, a key ring strap. I mean, there's actually everything that you need when you're on the go. MZ Wallace is offering Raising Good Humans listeners 15% off your first purchase. Just go to mzwallace.com slash humans, mzwallace.com slash humans for 15% off your first purchase. MZ Wallace is designed to do more. Uprising's mission is to free us all from a fundamentally broken food system that's really calling into question our health choices. The devil is in the snowball effect of silent inflammation, and they have cracked the code on healthy bread and crackers. So it's really hard to find something this healthy that tastes this good and this fresh. And... You know, they are only two net carbs per serving, six grams of protein, and nine grams of the very important fiber. So this brand covers paleo, clean keto, simple, low carb, high fiber, dairy-free, grain-free lifestyle. And Uprising has made prebiotic fiber delicious with their patent-pending breakthrough in psyllium husk activation, making fantastic digestive health really easy for all of us. All Uprising products are baked with real superfood ingredients, almonds, MCT oils, apple cider vinegar, egg whites, psyllium husk, olive oil, you know, the stuff that you read about that you're supposed to have to promote health. And it all comes down to taste because if it's a healthy food and it tastes like a healthy food, it may not be so appealing. So Uprising has kind of nailed the taste factor. They have like a sourdough-esque cube. They've got a crunch factor with newly launched freedom chips that are just really great for when you're needing a crunch and they just taste like old school rye chips. So right now Uprising is offering our listeners $10 off the starter bundle. That includes two superfood cubes and four packs of freedom chips to try. So go to uprisingfood.com humans and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's U-P-R-I-S-I-N-G food.com slash humans to get $10 off your first purchase of the starter bundle. I love what you said about, you know, that you can quit and leave, and you won't really understand how to navigate that until you get through those problems together as friends. I wonder if you could talk about roughhousing a little bit, because I remember seeing two kids who had never roughhoused together outside and play two brothers. And then these two other kids came to hang out and they are the kind of kids who wrestle safely with the self-regulation of knowing where that point is between roughhousing and actual harm. And, but the kids who had never done it before they participated and got so agitated and red in the face because they had never experienced that toggle of like getting their bodies uh. worked up and stopping before it was, you know, somebody was getting punched in the face. And I wondered about, I, I sort of loved, I mean, I sound like I was on safari, which it felt like, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, I was sort of interested in the the adults responses because I could see that for the kids who had never roughhoused outside before, they had had so much intervention when they went near each other that they never learned how to do that. And the ones who had were actually laughing and joking and definitely doing things that I am not used to because of the nature of the household that I have. And it is just, I mean, not to stereotype, but I have two daughters and that's just not what's happening. Right. But it was really interesting. So, I wonder where roughhousing comes into play here right. in this play.
1: Right. Yeah. So, roughhousing, or what researchers call rough and tumble play, characterizes essentially all mammals. And it's one of the major ways of playing. And it particularly characterizes males. So, stereotyping or not, the truth is, this is more common among males than among females. Rough and tumble play, people looking at uh, hunter-gatherer cultures say that, tell me that rough and tumble play occurs among girls much more than it does among girls in our culture. But even there, boys are doing more of it than girls are. So rough and tumble play is basically what it is, is you're, you're pretending to have a fight, but it is not a fight. It's in some sense the opposite of a fight, <laughs> Because there you are, you're going through the motions of the fight, but in a fight, the goal is to hurt the other person or drive Mm -hmm. the other person away or subdue the other person. The goal is to end the thing by winning, by beating the other person, making him give up or run away. So that's the goal. The goal in rough and tumble play is to have fun. The goal is to keep it going. The goal is to make your playmate you're happy as well as you happy. So the goal is the exact opposite of in a real fight. One of the theories as to why rough and tumble play, why natural selection created this drive for rough and tumble play in males more than females, is that males more than females need to learn how to be in close quarters with one another without killing one another. That males, you know, for evolutionary reasons, have more of an aggressive, violent tendency than females do mm-hmm. on average. That doesn't mean for every single person by any means, but on average. Uh-huh. And this yeah. is true in every culture and it's true for almost all other mammals as well as for human beings. So this is biological. But to uh, temper that, <laughs> natural selection also created... This tendency for boys and males of other mammalian species to engage in rough and tumble play, which actually does two things, you could say. The first of the two things is somewhat controversial, that it may be helping you learn how to fight, but there are many people saying that argument doesn't hold very well because it's so different from actual real fighting. And that there's no particular evidence that real fighting is actually being taught in this if you if you ever had to really fight the more compelling argument and the more the argument that more often people get is that this is in some sense boys' way of hugging <laughs> you know it's how boys can be close to one for another sure, for physically sure. close to one yeah. another and not be hurting one another and in the characteristics of rough and tumble play are, number one, whoever is the stronger or the, the more, the more um, skilled has to self-handicap. You don't state that you are, but you're self-handicapping in some way. You're reducing your own capabilities in some way in order to make it fun and even. There's also, in rough and tumble play, one of the characteristics in studying animals, one of the ways that you can tell this is play rather than a real fight is that animals and the same is true for boys deliberately put themselves into the more vulnerable position <laughs> it's almost preferable the desired position is to be in the vulnerable position the one who's lying down belly up you know the one who's because you are in some sense if if there is practice what you're practicing is getting out of being vulnerable getting out of that vulnerable position but is also by putting yourself in the vulnerable position, you are signaling to your play partner, you know, this is play. This is not a real fight. If this were a real fight, I would never be lying down belly up. <laughs> you know, I would never be. And that's true whether you're a wolf cub or whether you're a boy. So that's, the, um, that's what you're doing. You're playing with aggression. You're not being aggressive. Unfortunately, too many people don't see the difference between play fighting and real fighting. They'll look at it, especially teachers at school at recess or something, and it looks to them like fighting and they'll stop it.
0: So that's just something to, for people to keep in the back of their minds at that, that. Also, does that count for you as play? So I'm, I'm really just kind of trying to paint a picture because we forget how to play and we forget how to let our kids play, partly because of concerns about danger, but I think there's a little bit of it that's about trying to curate better experiences for kids and give them more skills. And so I love your work because, and and again, you, you said this in the beginning that the play shouldn't have this end goal of these other skills. But in fact, if you're a parent who is having trouble letting go of the idea of missed opportunities for growing skills, actually play does develop so many skills like executive function skills and interpersonal skills that we don't give it credit for. And so, I mean, yes, you can think about the psychology of the parent and say, hey, change the way you think you need to curate less and control less and let go. But because that's a bigger ask, I think that it can be easier to say we acknowledge that it's a Tough culture right now to allow for play, because there's so much concern for you. Ha- what about this other stuff that you have to learn? And so I, I did want to give a little bit of space to benefits of like the skills that you're building when you are playing. And this is true for two year olds and it's true for teenagers. Am right. I accurate?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the what what really are the most important skills to learn? when you are growing up. So if I were to list the most important skills that to learn when you're growing up, none of them are things that can be taught in school. All of them are things that you have to learn through experience. And the experience for children comes through play. So one of the most important skills you have to learn is to take charge of your own life that i have to be in charge of my own life i have to be responsible for my own actions and you can't learn that if other people are taking responsibility for your for your life all the time you have to be allowed to make some mistakes learn from your experience and children do that and play children do that when they're free and away from adults You have to learn i can solve my own problems i can get lost and find my way home it's almost impossible to get lost these days because you're carrying you're carrying an iphone with a gps but Mm -hmm. you know uh, part of growing up when i was a kid was everybody got lost and you find your way home and then you've got less afraid of getting lost you know well i think directions
0: are a little bit like spelling with spell check like We've yeah. lost our skills. So of we've of lost.
1: So, but at least you're you're learning. Even if you're doing it with a cell phone, you're learning. Well, I can use. I can find my way home. I don't have to worry about that. You're learning the skills that you need to take care of yourself and play. You're learning how to get along with uh, with peers. You know, one of the most important, maybe the most important skill that we human beings have to learn for meaningful and satisfying life is how to get along with peers. You know if you can't do that you can't have a good marriage you can't have real work partners you can't have real friends so how do you learn to get along with other people except through experience getting along with other people and by peers i mean other people who are kind of on your level not peer, not people who are authority figures who are you know who you defer to and so When children are playing with one another and they get into tuffles and they have disagreements and so on and so forth, the big lesson they're learning is how to get along with one another, how to compromise, how to take into account the other person's needs, how to be empathic because you have to pay attention even to the other person's nonverbal signals. If they're not having fun, they're going to quickly leave you. And that's the the natural punishment that occurs Mm -hmm. If you're being a bit of a bully or being so egotistical that you're not allowing the, your playmates to express themselves in the way that they want to do so. So those are extraordinarily important lessons and they can't be taught. You can lecture on that all you want and it's not going to, it's not going to make much difference. But when children are playing, these lessons come through in reality. You are also in play practicing especially little children, when they're playing uh, fantasy games, you're practicing very high-level cognitive activity. You are, you know, the highest, we, we think of sort of the highest level of human thought as hypothetical reasoning. You know, imagine that this were true, then what else has to be true? Piaget believed that uh, children were not capable of that until they are 11 or 12 years old. But in fact, if you watch children playing, four- and five-year-olds, even three-year-olds in some cases, are engaged in hypothetical reasoning all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. imagine there's a troll under the bridge. You know, we're playing there's a troll under the bridge. That's a hypothesis, right? There's no real troll under the bridge, but we're imagining there's a Well, if there's a troll under the bridge, what are the consequences? They don't use that word, but they say, well we better not go under the bridge or we better get some snacks for the troll so he doesn't eat us up. They're engaging in hypothetical reasoning. If this is true, then what are the consequences of that? This is the way scientists think. This is the highest form of human thought and even little children are practicing that in play. Also in terms of while we're on cognitive development, there was a study of a few years ago at the University of Colorado at Boulder they were interested in what's called self-directed executive processing, which Mm -hmm. is basically the ability to figure out on your own a way of solving a class of problems and then going ahead and actually solving problems using that method that you worked out yourself. And there's psychologists develop tests of everything. So they developed a test of uh, executive processing in young children self-directed executive processing. So these researchers did a study in which they had a large group of six-year-olds as their subjects and they determined for each of these six-year-olds how much free play time they had by interviewing the parents to find out how much time the children were in adult structured activities and how much time they were where they had to structure their own activities basically were playing. What they found, no surprise to me, was that the less time they were being directed by adults and the more time they had for free play, the better they scored on the self-directed executive processing study. So if you want your children to be good at executive processing, (laughs) give them lots of opportunity to play. I think that's really true. Here's another little research finding that's important. There's a lot of evidence that play promotes creativity. And interestingly, over the same period of time, one of the things that I've documented um, in my literature reviews, not in my own academic, my own empirical research, but by bringing together other people's research, is that. Over the past several decades, the opportunities for children to play freely has declined tremendously. Over that same period of time, there has been an increase in anxiety, increase in depression, decrease in the sense of control over your own life, and a decrease in creativity. As measured by, us, believe it or not, there are standard ways of assessing creativity, which turn out to be valid because children who score high on these tests uh, tend to be very creative in adulthood, uh, other things being equal, far more creative than other people, more likely to invent new products, start new companies, write novels, all the whole range of creative activities. Mm -hmm. But not surprisingly to me, as play has declined, so has creativity. And there is research showing that the more children play, the more creative they are. And, you know, people tend to denigrate video play, but there's a lot of research showing that video play also very much increases um, creativity as well as other cognitive processes. So
0: there will be many uh, parents excited to hear that. Yeah, don't
1: don't (laughs) think that your children should just be playing outdoors. (laughs)
0: What is play in adulthood? Is it defined the same way and should we be playing more so that our kids can believe and buy into play and we can benefit from our own chosen activity that just has no other purpose and is sort of structured in our own way?
1: Yeah, that you know that's a good question. When I talk about adult play, I'm more likely to use the word playful uh, because I think full-blown play in the way that I described it, uh, among all mammals, characterizes the young much more than the adults. And for most mammals, not all of them, but for most mammals, you just don't see play among adults. You see it as in the full way that I've described it, only among juveniles. The evolutionary argument is that this is because children, young mammals, young humans are Learning the skills they need to become adults through play and once they are adults and are actually engaged in in adult-like activities, then they don't need to, then they're practicing these skills in in their adult activities and uh, they've acquired the skills and play is not so necessary. But humans are an exception in that, uh, compared to most other mammals, in that uh, everywhere, and especially in hunter-gatherer cultures, uh, adults do play, uh, not as much as children, but real play, you know, what we would call full play, you know, by the way I described it, there is some of that kind of play. But I think even more important than that, more valuable than that for adults is to bring a playful attitude to whatever you're doing. As adults, we do have certain responsibilities that keep us very busy. And to the degree that you're doing things that you kind of have to do as an adult, you have to earn a living, you have to take care of your children and so on and so forth, our activities are often centered around achieving certain products achieving certain goals that we feel we need to achieve that somewhat undermines the idea that that same activity can be intrinsically motivated you're doing it just for its own sake rather than for some goal outside of itself but yet even at our work even for washing dishes even though cleaning the house no matter what we're doing we can bring a more playful attitude towards it if we think about it as, you know, this is something. Let me think about this as something that I've chosen to do. What if I just chose to do this? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and you bring that different attitude instead of feeling like, oh God, I have to do this. Let's pretend that I just chose to do this. <laughs> oh, I'm pretending to clean the house. You know, I'm, but in the meanwhile, you're actually doing. So you can kind of convince yourself that and it lightens the mood and you bring a a more and maybe I can do it in a different way or let me see if what what if I did it this way instead of that way Um, you're being creative while you're doing it so I think that there is a certain amount of work showing that people can actually learn to enjoy their jobs by beginning to imagine it as play rather than as drudgery no matter how boring the job actually is Uh, Of course, it helps if you're in a job where you have a lot of control over when you do it, how you do it. The more self-direction you have, the more it's play. And also, very interestingly, the more challenging it is, the more it's play. Play is always challenging. Mm -hmm. Children are always challenging themselves. It's boring if it's not challenging. So if you can somehow make washing the dishes challenging, you know, challenge yourself in some way. Can I do it faster? Can I do it this other way? You know, that helps bring a playful attitude to it. I think that just having a playful attitude, having children can tell when you're playful versus when you're not kind of inspires them to enjoy you more. <laughs> you're, mm-hmm. you're a more enjoyable person. Uh, you're a less threatening person to them. And mm-hmm. uh, you're somebody who might enjoy their playing too. And you're giving permission to play. So I think that's all helpful. I'm often asked are uh, by parents, should I play with my children? And I didn't at first know how to answer that. So there was some point at which I Googled playing with children just to see what people said about it. I found, interestingly, almost entirely from moms, I found people saying, I know I'm supposed to play with my child, but I hate to play with my child. Right, right. And then I would read why they hated to play with their child. And the common reason was that they believed that as part of playing with their child, they had gotten the message that they're not supposed to dominate. So what they were doing was letting the child dominate. And so, you know, it's no fun to be dominated. So like one mom said, my, ch- my son wants to play this game that involves, I forget exactly what, spinning a hoop or something over and over and over again. And. The mom said, well, for the first hundred times, it was fun. But after that, you know, it, it got really boring. Well, one thing is children have much more tolerance for repetition. That's right. part of how they're learning than adults do. So And and another mom said, my daughter wants to play this fantasy game with me, but she tells me exactly what I have to be and what I have to say. I'm not allowed (laughs) to be creative in this. I have to do exactly what she's telling me to do. You know, so of course nobody wants to do that. And no self respecting child would allow a playmate to dominate them in that way. <laughs> they would say, you know, if you're going to bully me like that, I'm leaving, I'm quitting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but some moms have gotten the notion that they're supposed to play with their child. They're supposed to play the way the child wants to play because otherwise they're dominating it and it's not playing the parent to dominate, but then they let the child dominate. I think dads maybe make the opposite mistake. I think dads get into a kind of play, more likely it's maybe they're making something with Legos with the child and the dad just takes it over. (laughs) You know, he gets involved in making the Legos and pretty soon it's his Lego project and not the child's. The problem in playing with children is there's such a big gap in size, in interest, in sense of humor, and so on between adults and children, that it's often difficult for it to be real play. So the challenge, and the challenge can be met, is to find ways of playing that is real play for both the adult and the child. Rough and tumble play is one such way of playing and dads are the generally the champs at that. <laughs> dads rough and tumbling with their daughter or their son, you know, rolling around on the floor, kicking them up on their, you know, on their legs, tossing them in the air, all of that kind of stuff. You have to be really careful that the child screams are screams of joy and not terror when you're doing Mm -hmm. this. You have to be attuned. But this is a very common way. This is probably the most common way that fathers play with children is rough and tumble kind of play. But another kind of play is games that have, you know, they can be board games. They can be card games. They can be any kind of games that have a sufficient element of luck that anybody can win, (laughs) Like Uno is a good one. Yeah, but there's a little bit of skill involved in it. But everybody, you don't have to, I don't think it's good when, parents play with their children and they deliberately lose so the child will win Mm -hmm. first of all that's not real play anymore (laughs) for the for the parent that you you've just are doing some kind of a favor for the child i think it's important to play a game where you're really all fully playing but you're playing you've chosen a game that the child has a decent chance of winning and will sometimes win and there are many such games uh, some of them are purely based on luck, but some of the better ones, there's a little bit of skill. The child is learning some kind of a skill as a, as a result, but it's a skill that you know a five or six year old or certainly a ten year old can learn. I remember really as a child and as a parent, enjoying family games. you know we would we would have sort of game night, we would get out whatever games monopoly depending on monopoly depending on the age and the We used to play a lot of Canasta when I was a kid. Even my six-year-old brother got really good at Canasta, which was a card game that was very popular Mm -hmm. at that time. So games of that sort. One of the things that, you know, we did a study through the Let Grow organization of how children the age range of eight to 13 were adapting during the school closures, during the first months of school closures, where they Mm -hmm. suddenly had lots of free time, but they were stuck at home. And what we found was, this was a very large-scale study, 33,200 families in all with uh, across the country, across economic groups, published in the American Journal of Play if you're interested in anybody's interest in looking it up. But what we found was that children were doing far better than most people predicted. They were less anxious, more happy than they had been before the pandemic when they were going to school. Mm. And one of the reasons was because they were bonding with their family. Mm. Many of them said that we're playing family games, we're eating dinners together I'm developing an understanding of my parents. And the parents said, we're developing an understanding of our children that we didn't have before because we're doing more things with them. So that's a testament for the value of of playing with your kids as long as it's real play and as long as you're respecting as the adult your own needs as well as respecting the child's needs.